0: For the past couple of weeks, starting in January, we've been focusing on, on a prayer life, the prayer life of the believer, the prayer life of the church, and taking times at the end of the services to engage in that, and we'll do that again this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles or you have your device with the Bible on it, if you would take them and, and turn, please, to Hebrews chapter 4. There's going to be a number of different scriptures that we're going to be approaching this morning, and, and I hope that you'll be able to take some notes. Uh, as it relates to that. But in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, the Scripture says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. And I'd like you to highlight this next verse in your mind. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, or boldly, it may be in your Bible, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Lord, I don't know the reasons that different people came to church today. Some of them may have come because they wanted to see some friends. Some of them may have come out of tradition. It's just what they do on Sunday mornings. Whatever the reason may be, we have entered into a place where we are in Your presence. And our greatest desire is that the anointing of the Holy Spirit would rest upon Your Word and rest upon Your people so that You could begin to unlock hearts and do an eternal work within our lives. Father, the topic that I'm approaching today, I pray that You would give me clarity of speech so that we could understand that we could take a look at Your Word and find out what You are doing and how we participate. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you have been a church member of Grace Assembly for a long time, and when I, when I first became the pastor here, one of the first people that I met was a man by the name of James Williamson. And some of you might remember that name. James would, would come... Before the service was started, and we only had one service at that time, and he would park his old pickup out here in the very first spot, and he would roll down his windows, and he would play his bluegrass Christian music as loud as he could, and so that everybody that was walking in would, would hear this music as it was coming in. And, and on one of my first Sundays here, he came in and he introduced himself to me this way. Pastor, I'm going to heaven, and it's going to be a big surprise to my wife when I get there. That was was how he introduced himself. That did lead to a question of there's got to be a story here behind this that I might be interested in. And, And here's what he told me He said, He told me of his salvation experience that took place on June the 21st, 2003. Four days before his salvation, his wife Jenny had passed away. She had been a godly woman, she had prayed for her unsaved husband constantly. But he indicated to me that he had wanted nothing to do with God. He said, I would never stop her from coming to church, but I forbid her to give any of our money to the Lord and would never let her tithe or give offerings. He said, in fact, I used to make fun of her when she would make a meal and she would put it out for us to eat, and then she would sit down and pray like, what, are you trying to poison me so you're praying that your poison doesn't kill me? And he said, just used to look at that rather uniquely as he made fun of her. He said, I did everything I could to make it hard for her to live with me and live for God. He said, it wasn't until after she died, as he was sitting in this room during her funeral, that God began to unlock something within his heart, and something broke open, and he began to recognize his need for Jesus as his Savior. And he said, in that moment at her memorial service, my life was completely changed, He told me he was ashamed of the way that he had lived and he was ashamed of the way that he had acted after he had committed his life to the Lord. In fact... His life changed so drastically that he would say, I waited so long to follow the Lord that I don't have much time left to make up for it, but I'm going to do my best. So we used to have an old bench that would sit outside these doors, and he would sit there, and everybody that came in and out of the church, he would begin to greet and and tell them about how much he loved the Lord and that they should too, and he told everybody about how great Jesus is, and, and he was determined that nothing would stand in his way of pleasing God with the rest of his life. Life. One day I got a call that Jim was in the hospital and that he was not doing well In fact, we were told that we should probably rush over there if we wanted to see him again Mark Freeman was the youth pastor at the time And I think Christian Glisten was an interning with us Because I've got in my notes as I was looking back that the three of us went to the hospital Now, it's not uncommon to get these calls as a pastor That somebody is about to pass, you need to rush there I don't think that we were prepared to find Jim in the condition that he was in because we walked in and he was sitting up and he was joyful. Uh, it's not exactly the image that you have when you think somebody's about to go. In fact, he began a conversation with us that, that was really rather interesting. He was full of the joy of the Lord and he talked about how I am finally close to being able to go home to see Jesus and I'm going to get to see my Jenny again. And In fact, one of the things that he had made sure that we would do when we got there is uh, he was... He was probably of the generation that didn't trust banks, so he had all his cash with him all the time. So he had put all of his cash into the safe at the hospital, and when we got there, he said, listen, he told the nurse, I need you to go to the safe, and I need you to bring me all of my money. My pastor's here. I'm, I'm new here. And I remember, I, Mark, you remember this? He's not this, this nurse comes in with this envelope and she hands it to him and he begins to, to thumb through the cash and he calls me over to bed and he hands me this. He goes, listen, this is my tithe and if I'm going to die, I want to make sure that I don't have a bill left when I get there to heaven. I have never been so embarrassed in the ministry in my whole life. In front of the nurses and the hospital workers there, this man is paying his tithe. And uh, I took it. Just wanted to throw that out there for you. <laughs> and a few days later, Jim Williamson went home to heaven. And had a, often I have thought about, I wonder what the reunion was like for him. What does it look like in heaven when we pray? And the reason that I tell that story is because it's a great example of God answering somebody's prayer even when they're no longer here to see it? What happens in heaven when we who are locked in time and space of earth begin to engage ourselves in an activity of prayer into the timelessness of an eternal space? And I want to approach the topic of Scripture today. The, The title of this message is Our Altar and God's Throne. Our Altar and God's Throne... So that you can catch a glimpse of the power of your effective, fervent praying. Now, most people have a difficult time with praying. Some of them stumble through things because they think in their mind that my prayers don't reach God. Or they think that God doesn't take my prayers seriously. Or that God has a general apathy toward people's prayers and that he's going to do what he wants to anyway, regardless of what you may or may not ask him to do. And what I want to share with you this morning comes from a spiritual experience that Rick DeBose, our general counsel assistant superintendent of the Assemblies of God, had, and he has spoken about in relationship to an experience that he had when God allowed him to glimpse the throne room. Now... I'm going to do something this morning I have never done in the ministry before, and I need you to listen closely to me because my, my, my executive secretary treasurer of our network is sitting in the, in the room today. And uh, if I do something wrong, I'm accountable. Here's what you need to know We believe that there is no modern day revelation, no prophecy, no dream or vision that is of equal authority to scripture. Do you understand what I'm saying? In fact, for those of you that are ordained here, or those of you that may feel a call into the ministry, I'm going to give you an answer to one of the ordination questions. Because I sit on that committee and we will ask you, when is modern-day revelations, prophecy, visions, or dreams equal to Scripture? And your answer is never. It's as easy as that. Having said that, and I... And for those of you that are watching online, if you take a snippet of this without having this in there, I'm going to really be ticked off at you. (laughs) Everything, including what I preach, must be held to what does the Bible say. It must be measured to the construct of biblical truth. But there are times when somebody will have a spiritual experience that may fit within the criteria of biblical truth that may help us better understand things that we have a hard time envisioning. In fact, it tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. Not necessarily our visions, not necessarily our dreams, not prophecy, not interpretation. Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Having said that, Rick DeBose is an individual that I trust, and there are some things I'm going to share from you, with you today of His vision that I believe may give us a sense of how important it is that we pray and what happens when we pray. I'm going to divide this up into different sections. And if you're taking notes, the first section I want to divide this up to is the throne. I want you to, to, to look at the throne with me. In Hebrews 4.16, Scripture says, Let us then approach... The throne of grace with confidence, or let us do it boldly so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice that I heard first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with somebody sitting on it. Rick DeBose, a number of years ago, went into a time of prayer in his church, and the way he describes it, he was given a view from heaven of how God interacts with the prayers of his people. He describes it as it wasn't so much as a vision as it was a realization of insight into so many images and descriptions that we have encountered throughout Scripture. He said, Suddenly by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, the pieces of those passages locked into place before my eyes and instantly what men like John and Isaiah and Ezekiel had long described was mine as well. I was given an experience of the throne room above and it was immediately clear to me that I was not there to be a spectator or to be impressed, but I was there to uh, learn something from this insight into why and how I prayed. The first thing I noticed is that we have been given remarkable access to the throne room of God. God gives unique attention to the words of our prayers. Please realize... We do not enter into the throne room of God symbolically. When we bow our heads to pray, we are in His throne room. Rick said, the first thing that drew my eye was His throne. It was to my left with my peripheral vision. I could see only its base, but I knew what it was, and I knew who it was. There was an overwhelming sense of His presence and a sense of His immense significance to everything taking place there. It is still the most difficult part for me to describe. I am sure, however, that you have also sensed the presence of God in ways that are difficult for you to articulate. I knew I was in the presence of God. I knew I was before his throne. I knew that... I was in his throne room, and he was seated in the power over everything else I experienced. I could not bring myself to look at him because I knew I wasn't supposed to. To simply be with him and in his presence was enough, and I was there by his grace. My sense was like that so often described in Scripture and experienced in, in prayer. His presence humbled me. We realize his holiness In our true position, in humble reverence before him. He says, there was no sense of fear, at least not the kind that makes you want to run. There was instead a sense of awe that leaves you quiet and still and without words. It was right that he was being worshipped. He was rightfully seated in the center of all things. He said, I also recognized that there was a place beside him on this great throne, but no one was seated on that throne at the moment, and we knew who it belonged to. It belonged to Jesus Christ. He shared completely in the power and authority and the holiness of God, and it would soon be clear why it was currently empty. He then goes on to describe a circle of thrones. He goes, as I begin to look around, I realize that I was encircled by even more thrones, 24 of them. The first was placed to the left of God's throne and the rest formed an enormous circle that eventually connected back to God's right. I remember John's description of these thrones in the book of Revelation chapter 4. Surrounding the throne there were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. There were these seats of 24 elders He described them as 12 for the apostles and 12 for the tribes of Israel. And above these thrones, four cherubim were flying and singing praise. And they were singing, holy, holy, holy. And he said it was echoed by those that sat on the circle of thrones. In Isaiah's vision of the throne room, it struck me that he didn't mention these thrones. They were central to John's vision and revelation in the New Testament. And Rick wrote, perhaps... In Isaiah's day, these thrones were not yet completely and fully seated. The throne room was being shaped by the work of Jesus and his apostles, and what happened on earth was being reflected in the expanding worship of the throne room itself. It was obvious to me that the layout of these thrones was significant. They were intentionally arranged in the shape of a circle. The circle that is often alluded to in Scripture in Isaiah 40, as the circle of the earth. These words suddenly took on new significance. He then moves on to describe the earth and the sea of glass. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, And before the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In Revelation 15:2 it is spoken of, and I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number and his name. Oh, one of the details he said that I remember most clearly is what scripture calls the sea of glass. It is within the ring of thrones and it was massive in its surface and it appeared as clear as crystal. And as I looked closer, however, beneath the glass was the earth stretched out in such a way that it was entirely visible all at once. He says, now we know that the earth is round. We know that it rotates on its axis. It gives us light and shadows and it circles the sun in a sweeping annual orbit. But in this heavenly reality... Though all of it was visible and present at once, the way that it was laid out so that Jesus could see everything going on simultaneously everywhere. This, he said, was not so much a physical description, but a witness to the ever-present attention of Jesus as it relates to our lives. The whole earth is always before him. When he looks down from his throne, he simultaneously sees every island and every nation and every city and every home and every person. It is all before him, and his feet rested on the sea of glass. It is the image of all creation. And he says, I was instantly reminded of two verses. Second Chronicles 16, 19. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. And Isaiah 66, 1. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. He said, I finally understood it. All creation was there, always before Him, unfolded across the floor of His throne. He rules over it all. And then he goes on to describe the intercession of Jesus. He said across this glassy image of the earth, Jesus is walking on this sea. He walked on the sea of glass as he walked across the sea of Galilee. And as Jesus walked, the image of the earth beneath him began to move. With each step he took, the world shifted. As nations began to burst into light... Perhaps it was what John described when he saw Jesus walking among the candlesticks in Revelation 2.1. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I had the distinct impression that Jesus was doing the same, walking now amongst the churches spread all over the globe, each church burning brightly on earth. And there was a striking interactivity between Jesus and the earth below. Not only as Jesus walked did the earth shift beneath his feet, but it zoomed in and focused on cities and streets and individual homes and individual people. The movements weren't random. Something was happening, some purpose in each shift. And he said, and then I heard Jesus praying. As he walked, the earth moved. He was interceding. With each place he stood, Jesus turned to face the throne of the Father and prayed for those lives that were beneath him. Again, those prayers were not random. They were being directed by the prayers of the saints on earth. The lights glowing, the buildings across the map, seemed to intensify as Jesus took up their cause in intercession. their prayers. The prayers of the earth were rising up to Jesus, and He was amplifying them, magnifying them before God. The interactivity was not just geographical, it was spiritual. Jesus was connecting to places on earth through intercessory prayer. The prayers of the earth we're taking on no new momentum when they were prayed in the authority of the name of Jesus. How many times have I prayed in Jesus name, not fully understanding what I was participating in? It had long been the way that most of us conclude our prayers. Rick said, however, I now understand what I had been saying. It's not just a formality. It's not just a concluding phrase similar to signing a letter with sincerely. He said, when we pray in the name of Jesus, we are offering up our prayers into the throne room to the one who intensifies them in a unique privilege that is given to us through the relationship that we have with him as his redeemed believers. And in that relationship, he takes our prayers and intensifies them and presents them to the Father. And when we pray in Jesus' name, our prayers are magnified and released with greater authority. In fact, how important is the name of Jesus? There's this really interesting passage in Acts chapter 19, verses 13 through 17. It said, Some of the Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, were doing this. And one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. But who are you? And the man who had an evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. For those of you that become accustomed to taking the Lord's name in vain, may I remind you of the power and authority of the name of Jesus. He said, John was right when he described Jesus' voice as the sound of many waters, Jesus' prayers are not like ours, limited to a single tongue or a single thought. His prayers are filled with the prayers of the believers all over the world. The prayer upon His lips are like rivers and rivers of prayer that are streaming from the earth right through Him into the throne room of God and being presented to the Father. Your prayers are not in some heavenly line waiting for somebody to take your number so that they can... Or take your prayers and, and bring it to the Lord in worship. He said, no, Jesus takes them all simultaneously and through him presents them as they rise to him, to the Father. He said, never have I spoken a prayer in Jesus' name that has not been taken through Jesus to the Father instantaneously. He describes the balcony of saints. As I watch these prayers rise from earth filling the throne room by Jesus' name, I began to notice the scale of the room. I had been focused on what was below me, but now I began to see the immensity of the space above. Circling the throne room was a great balcony, a massive mezzanine filled with saints peering down and watching all the movement and the action below. And from their vantage point, they could witness how the activity of heaven was directly connected to the activity of earth. They saw through the throne room down into creation. They were witnesses to the prayer of earth and the divine responsiveness. He said, I begin to understand the power of the witnesses that I never had before. They were not only witnesses to the work that God had done in their own lives, but by their position in heavens, they were witnesses to the work of God across all time in creation. Listen closely. He said, I watched as saints were called individually to come to the rail, called forward to the front of the balcony. They were being invited to witness something that was going to be unique to them. I realized that these saints that were being called had died with prayers that had not yet been fulfilled in their lifetime. But those prayers remained in heaven. Their prayers existed in the throne room, and even after they had passed from this earth, now these men and women were being called to the rail and welcomed as they recognized and got to see things that they had prayed for and never saw in their life come to pass as their prayers were answered after they were gone, and they were finally answered on earth below. They were being called forward to see their prayers answered in the fulfillment of the time and space that they did not any longer know. No prayer had been ignored. No prayer had been lost. No prayer had been forgotten. Their prayers waited in the throne room until their sovereign moment, and they, by God's calling, were now able to see their prayers fulfilled. He described this. Grandparents were witnessing their grandchildren that they had prayed for until they died finally received salvation they were witnessing the marriage of their children finally restored Saints were witnessing the fresh revivals poured out on the churches that they had long served and for that which they had prayed for so long. Nations were being transformed before the eyes of those who had given their lives and missionary work for those places. Having not seen the fruit of their prayers while alive, they are now witnessing it from the balcony of heaven as they are called forward to see that their prayers are finally being answered. Not only were they witnessing it, but they were being called forward. And as they were being called forward, all of heaven is acknowledging their participation in this great movement of God. And as they witnessed it, they worshiped and declared the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Let me make a clarifying point here. At no part did it ever indicate that they could see everything that was happening on earth. But they were called forward when in answer to prayer they could see that even prayers they had prayed before they died that God answered. In fact, it tells us in Acts 7.55 of Stephen... Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And from Stephen's vantage point on earth, he looks up through the sea of glass into the throne room above, and soon he would be brought up to it himself. How Stephen must have rejoiced as he took his own place among those saints. And he witnessed the answer to his own prayers as the gospel spread across Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and under the ends of the earth. And then Rick goes on to describe the arena of angels. It says, As this balcony of saints grew in worship, it was echoed louder and louder by an ascending arena up above it that had nothing but angels, a great stadium of heavenly hosts, row after row, rising above the throne room, surrounding it all. And John describes in Revelation 5.11, Then I looked... And I heard the voices of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And as I begin to think about this, does this not give you a different perspective of what it means in Luke 15, 7 when it says this, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Do you get the scene of the rejoicing of heaven when somebody decides to follow Jesus. Rick goes on to say, they were too numerous to count. He said, the angels were falling on their faces and echoing the words of the passing cherubim, holy, holy, holy. Suddenly the whole stadium and the throne room below was filled with the sounds of worship and glorifying God and as Jesus prayed, specific angels were being commissioned in that arena to go down through the sea and down onto the earth. He says at times there would be a commissioning of an angel and one would go. He says at other times there would be armies of them, thousands of angels descending on the earth in response to the prayers of God's people, crying out for God to do something. He said, I couldn't see where they were going. I couldn't see the work that they were doing. As they descended, they were sent by God into those places that prayer had necessitated their arrival and that God had ordered and they went at His direction. All of these images combined into a clear sense of the enormous movement and energy of heaven. I stood gazing at a spectacular energy of the heavens and the earth below. It was alive with activity of prayer and intercession and worship and declarations and heartfelt petitions and the movement of saints and angels. He said, heaven is in constant motion responding and moving in coordination with the prayers of earth. There were no missing pieces. No thrones were empty. Everything was active in response to prayer. Everything was coordinated, never chaotic, but orchestrated in constant motion, all of it at the culmination of the prayer of the saints of God. And by the power of the name of Jesus, we have access to it all. Our prayers rose into this throne room and it moved it and it stirred it and heaven and earth are moved by the prayers prayed in the name of Jesus and Rick said as quickly as it began it was over he said I found myself kneeling in the same pew of the sanctuary by myself as I was and he said and in that moment I sensed that God saying to him what did you learn He said, it was clear that the Spirit of God wanted me to learn something about all of the prayers that I had been praying for so long. He says, and here's what I would share. We, as believers in Jesus Christ, who know Him as our personal Savior, we live in the throne room. It's not a separate place. It's not somewhere up there that's off in the distance. It isn't some abstract theological concept. The whole earth is there in the middle of it. All of our days are lived before Him. There's nothing that He doesn't see. We live and we pray and we dwell in the midst of the throne room surrounded by the thrones of God. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven, and I saw a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. He says, here's what I learned. Heaven and earth are one. I finally understood why God said that one day I'm going to have to destroy this heaven and earth and create a new one. He said, you cannot destroy one without the other, any more than we can live in one and not the other. The heavens are His throne. The earth is His footstool. They are joined in prayer. And you are there right now. You are in His throne room. When we pray, we take our place and we acknowledge that that's where we are. And we have access to everything in heaven. By your prayers, you move heaven. By your prayers, Jesus moves and praise. By your prayers, the angels descend. By your prayers, saints bear witness to victories. By your prayers, God's act. Now let me remind you of the text that I had at the beginning of this. And worship team, if you'd please come. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we possess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We cannot forget why God calls us to His throne room boldly. Because by His grace, we've been given access to all of it. Don't know about you, but this changed the way that I have prayed the past two or three weeks. With this sense that somehow every word that I say, even when it doesn't feel like it, is being ushered right through Jesus. That when we pray in the name of Jesus, there's an intensity and an anointing that begins to be added to that that only those of us who know Him have access to. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, then I'm going to ask you in just a moment to receive Him. Just like Jim Williamson did here one day when his wife, at a memorial service, changed everything. It's going to He's going to change you. So if what Rick saw is true, Jenny wasn't surprised. When Jim came walking into heaven... Because she may have been called to the rail to say, hey, I want you to watch a funeral. You're not going to believe. All the prayers for that man that had made fun of you. All the prayers for that man that told you you would never give a penny. He gave his tithe in his hospital room. Your prayers broke through and a man's heart was changed and he's going to be showing up in heaven and here's what his salvation looked like. Now, for those of you that aren't saved, who's praying for you? Whose prayers today have brought you to this place. Who might celebrate in heaven of those that may have gone before that have been lifting you before the throne of God for this moment right here.